This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. I'm Dana Duncan. Floridation. Tonight, for our 198th episode, we discuss the Cold War satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 1964, celebrating its 60th anniversary. Directed and written by Stanley Kubrick, with Terry Southern and Peter George, Music by Laurie Johnson, starring Peter Sellers as Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, Merkin Muffley, the president, and Dr. Strangelove. George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson, Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano, Jack Creeley as Mr. Staines, Slim Pickens as Major T.J. King Kong, Peter Bull as Soviet Ambassador Alexei Dzedeski, James Earl Jones as Lieutenant Lothar Zog, Tracy Reed as Miss Scott, and Shane Rimmer as Captain Ace Owens. Recognition for this movie? Based on the novel Red Alert by Peter George, Dr. Strangelove was originally released on January 29, 1964. Dr. Strangelove would go on to gross nearly $9.1 million dollars Worldwide, finishing as the number 12 film of 1964. The film also garnered four Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Director for Stanley Kubrick, Actor for Peter Sellers, and Adapted Screenplay for Southern, George, and Kubrick. Dr. Strange Love is on Roger Ebert's list of the great movies, and he described it as arguably the best political satire of the century. In 1998, Time Out conducted a reader's poll, and Dr. Strangelove was voted the 47th greatest film of all time. Entertainment Weekly voted it at number 14 on their list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. In 2002, it was ranked as the fifth best film in the Sight and Sound poll of best films. It is also listed as number 26 on Empire's 500 greatest movies of all time, and in 2010, it was listed by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best films since the publication's inception in 1923. The Writers Guild of America ranked its screenplay the 12th best ever written. In 2000, readers of Total Film Magazine voted it the 24th greatest comedic film of all time. The film ranked 42nd on BBC's 2015 list of the 100 greatest American films. The film was selected as the second best comedy of all time in a poll of 253 film critics from 52 countries conducted by the BBC in 2017. The film ranked number 32 on TV Guide's list of the 50 greatest movies on TV and video. The American Film Institute included the film as number 26 in its initial AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies. It was number 3 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs. It was number 64 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes with Gentlemen, You Can't Fight in Here, This is the War Room and number 39 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition. In 1989, Dr. Strangelove was one of the inaugural 25 films selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry. It currently holds a 98% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 97 score on Metacritic, and a 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. 
So as we start each week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that I'd always heard about and I'd never watched until probably about 20 years ago when I found it on uh, like Turner and I watched it. I enjoyed it then. I think I've watched it two or three times since and it may have been four. Yeah. To my recollection, this is only my second time watching the film. I was reticent to watch it, except that it was on the AFI list that we mentioned a few minutes ago. And as I'm a completionist, I was going through that entire list. But one of the reasons I held off as long as I did is, is as you very well know, I'm not a fan of Peter Sellers. <laughs> and the fact that you told me that he was playing multiple roles in this just made it worse. However, I will say this is, as I mentioned last week, probably the only Peter Sellers role that I actually appreciated. What else have you seen him in other than the three Pink Panther films? That's enough. I don't need to necessarily see more to say that I need to see less. <laughs> it's like me and Michael Bay. I watched two Transformer movies and I'm like, okay, I'm good. I don't need to see anything Michael Bay did ever again. Oh, well. The only time that situation didn't work was when I prejudged the Coen brothers. <laughs> you need to see being there. That's what uh, our friend Mr. Andrew Korn said as well. It's a great film. All right. I mean, I, I will keep an open mind figuring that it will be on this show at one point or another. Yeah. So what is the movie actually about? Just the folly of mad mutual assured destruction and how it, it basically we're being led by a bunch of incompetents who don't seem to really have a grasp as to how close they are to the line of total world annihilation. I can't differ all that much. A lot of this is seemingly about how very small the margin is for us to go into a nuclear holocaust. And while that is not necessarily funny on its face, the way that they create the tension and then release the tension, then create the tension and then release the tension throughout the course of the film, even down to the point where the bomb has already dropped, it's gone off, you know the doomsday machine is about to go off, and all they're discussing is, is the ratio of women to men in the mine shaft and whether there will be a mine shaft gap. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a completely absurd film and George C. Scott is probably number two on that list only behind Dr. Strangelove. Well, we'll get to that as far as best performances and such, but George C. Scott really uh, was hilarious in this film. Unfortunately, he swore never to work with Kubrick again as Kubrick convinced him to do some outlandish takes that he said were not recorded and then use those in the final film, trying to coax Scott into being more and more absurd. You can tell this was uh, a performance that was meant to be a lampoon of him or of the character. Basically, take his character from Patton, cross it with this character, and I think you have what he was probably setting out to do, but we got an even more outlandish version of that. Maybe. I'm not so sure about that. I, I'm not, I would have been interesting to see how he wanted to play it if he wanted to be more serious. 
I mean, he realized they were making a comedy that was supposed to be a uh, satire of the political military situation at that time. But he does go over the top on several of those points. Now, one of the things that strikes me about this movie is given its subject material and how little my generation thinks about nuclear war is how relevant is this movie yet? But given that it looks like a certain North Korean dictator is almost hell bent on testing out a ICBM that can reach America, at least Los Angeles, it it makes me wonder whether this movie isn't entirely relevant. It is, but you didn't grow up in the Cold War like I did. And just all the tropes that they fed you that, you know, the Russians were this horrible horde of people that were bent on destroying us. And, and really, in retrospect, we were probably in the middle, more or less. Um, they were afraid of us. We were afraid of them type of deal. But it's a completely different feel right now because... Yeah, there's a potential for nuclear holocaust, but the tension is not nearly as palpable as it was when I was growing up. I mean, it was commonly discussed why we had to make sure that we didn't have a missile gap. It's just different. The film is very reflective of a Kennedy-era mindset where we're, I, I believe this movie was made about immediately in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there is a sort of brinksmanship that I don't know if I or anybody of my age or younger can appreciate when it comes to these kinds of movies. I mean, is there additional context that we can really add that, you know, for our audience that may or may not have basically been around for even the Reagan years when we were thumping our chests <laughs> trying to beat the Russians. It, it's it's hard to describe because you realized that you didn't, you know, there was a big movement for disarmament and uh, a peace movement that was going on. And I remember they had a disarmament conference at my college, my freshman year. And I spoke up against it because I said, how can you trust the Russians? You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, apparently you can trust the Russians enough to host them in your own home. Yeah, now. But, you know, at the time, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I took Russian history in college was know your enemy. Trying to understand what was going on with them and what their psyche was. Ah, there's the politician again. Do you think this movie would still be relevant if it was remade? And not as a period piece, but like a modern telling. I think it would be more difficult to tell this story. I mean, because the United States is so far and away above everyone else as far as military capabilities. I mean, the Russians have nuclear weapons, but I don't know. I I, I question the level of technology that they have and how accurate and how good it is. You'd have to wage it as far as being some sort of 
arms race between the Chinese and the North Koreans or somebody like that. And with the Chinese, it's not just the thought of mutual assured destruction, but it's the fact that if they did, they would wipe out their whole economy. And so this was supposed to be a, the, this your generation international economics was supposed to replace military armament as a major international force that prevented or helped propel individual countries into not going to war and not seeking military solutions for their problems. Deterrent. Yes. The deterrent is no longer the weapons as much as it is the economics. And I'm not sure how much that's even a deterrent anymore. I think it's more than you think because we have such a global economy. I don't discount that it is, but I also see that we have a lot of people that are trying to withdraw their economics back to solo and isolationism. And you have a lot of governments that are not quite as worried about the economy portion of it as they are about the strongman efforts because the governments of the world are in direct conflict or in competition with what I would say are our mini or junior nation states of corporations yeah, for influence and control. Okay. But now I'm sounding extra conspiratorial. <laughs> I'll be checking your bodily fluids later. Okay. Um, all right. I don't know if I like the thought of that, but okay. Nor should you. But do you want to give us some additional background on this movie? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. In Stanley Kubrick's satirical masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, the Cold War tension reaches a bizarre crescendo as the United States and the Soviet Union teeter on the brink of nuclear annihilation. With a darkly comedic touch... Kubrick weaves a tale of political incompetence, military absurdity, and the unpredictable consequences of technological warfare. Peter Sellers delivers a tour de force performance in multiple roles, including the titular Dr. Strangelove, a wheelchair-bound ex-Nazi scientist with a penchant for sinister solutions. As geopolitical tensions unfold, the film explores the absurdity of a mutually assured destruction and the precarious balance between power and chaos. Kubrick's sharp wit and keen eye for irony make Dr. Strangelove a timeless commentary on the folly of humanity in the face of its own creation. Thank you. Did you know? It was originally planned for the film to end with a scene that depicted everyone in the war room involved in a pie fight. Accounts vary as to why the pie fight was cut. In a 1969 interview, Kubrick said, I decided it was farce and not consistent with the satiric tone of the rest of the film. Critic Alexander Walker observed that the cream pies were flying around so thickly that people lost definition and you couldn't really see whom you were looking at. Niall Southern, son of screenwriter Terry Southern, suggested the fight was intended to be less jovial. Since they were laughing, it was unusable because instead of having that totally black, which would have been amazing, like this blizzard in which a sense is metaphorical for all of the missiles that are coming as well, you just have these guys having a good old time. So as Kubrick later said, 
It was a disaster of homerific proportions. Did you know? A first test screening of the film was scheduled for November 22, 1963, the day of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The film was just weeks from its scheduled premiere, but because of the assassination, the release was delayed until January 1964, as it was felt that the public was in no mood for such a film any sooner. Did you know? In the months following the film's release, director Stanley Kubrick received a fan letter from LaGrace G. Benson of the Department of History of Art at Cornell University, interpreting the film as being sexually layered. The director wrote back to Benson and confirmed the interpretation. Seriously, you were the first one who seems to have noticed the sexual framework from intermission. The planes going into the last spasm, Kong's ride down and detonation at Target. <laughs> yeah. Did you know? In 1995, Kubrick enlisted Terry Southern to script a sequel titled Son of Strange Love. Kubrick had Terry Gilliam in mind to direct. The script was never completed, but index cards laying out the story's basic structure were found among Southern's papers after he died in October 1995. It was set largely in underground bunkers where Dr. Strangelove had taken refuge with a group of women. In 2013, Gilliam commented, I was told after Kubrick died by someone who had been dealing with him that he had been interested in trying to do another Strangelove with me directing. I never knew about that until after he died, but I would have loved to. He would have been about the right person to do it, too. Yeah. Did you know? Peter Sellers was paid $1 million, 55% of the film's budget. Stanley Kubrick famously quipped, I got three for the price of six. Columbia Pictures agreed to finance the film only if Peter Sellers played at least four major roles. The condition stemmed from the studio's opinion that much of the success of Kubrick's previous film, Lolita from 1962, was based on Sellers' performance, in which his single character assumes several identities. Sellers also played three roles in The Mouse That Roared from 1959. Kubrick accepted the demand, later saying that such crass and grotesque stipulations are sine qua non of the motion picture business. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 199th episode, we travel to post-war Europe with the spy thriller The Third Man from 1949, celebrating its 75th anniversary. Directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, music by Anton Karras, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we left off at best performance. Who do you have down? I have Peter Sellers. As do I. I, I there's only real one direction to go with this. Yeah, because, I mean... <laughs> His Dr. Strangelove is just, in and of itself, is probably one of the great characters uh, in cinema. I mean, he he really nailed it. Just the absurdity of the uh, <laughs> his arm, who which he can't control, immediately flings up into a, a Nazi salute and all of that. It's a very hilarious performance. The final scene with him, I think, is indicative of probably the best that he's ever been. Even Kubrick said, Strangelove was an added character from the book. It's an entirely new creation that Peter Sellers did. But 
he credits Sellers with the majority of the success of this film, which is unusual for Kubrick. Most of what he does is usually so meticulous, so innately crafted that for him to give credit to anybody else would almost be folly. But this is one of the rare examples where he let Sellers just create and he just filmed it as best as he could, trying to capture the essence of what Sellers was putting on screen. Again, in three roles. I mean, it's not even like when Mike Myers does it for Austin Powers and it's just goofy. This is actually like highly satirical, highly conceptualized, and within the bounds of this movie where it doesn't seem like it's too far off one way or the other. I mean, even as absurd as Strange Love is, it somehow is a nice capper on this entire film and the endeavor of the tension that you've gone through. Again, tension and release, tension and release all through the course of the film. Whenever there's something where it gets just a little bit too far into one side, you have somebody come out with some just absurd thing, whether it's George C. Scott or Sterling Hayden or Peter Sellers. It's all-time performances all the way down, but he leads the list. So who do you have for secondary? Secondary, it's hard to go with anybody that's not Kubrick. Again, due to his meticulous nature, I do love the way that this is shot, with the exception that, I and it will be counted against in classicness, but going from this to 2001 in the visuals, I mean, the plane looks like it's on the original Star Trek. It looks like it's just held up by a string and it's flying with a background and, you know, it, it looks awful. So as far as the set design or production design, I don't know if I give him quite full credit, but from a writing standpoint, a conceptualization, even the way he sandbagged a completely different movie that was too similar to his own so that his could be out first, he was a ridiculous genius and yet produce one of the great works of cinema. Well, I understand and I can appreciate that the work he did and all of the writing and everything. I think it was more of a collaborative project as far as the writing, the directing. There was a lot of this that was, uh, as I read ad libbed, especially by sellers. And then he would take the lines after they created them and filmed them and then write them in so that the script actually showed the lines that were ad-libbed and created. So I couldn't go with Kubrick on this for that reason. I went with Sterling Hayden. I mean, <laughs> how many times have you had a picture of what a Air Force general who was in command of, a, of an Air Force base would be like? That would be it. And then you can slowly see him uh, degenerate into, into madness where it, it, his level of insanity becomes clear as events transpire and you can see the cracks developing in the uh, facade that he's presented. No, he certainly is the depiction of mental instability as the film progresses. I have no doubt in that whatsoever. I just don't know if he rises to the level of how many things he's doing during this film as Kubrick is. That'd be my, okay. my lone separation argument. But given that you nominated Hayden for that one, I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with uh, most charismatic and it might be the same for me. Okay. 
I have Scott. I have Scott. I mean, <laughs> some of the the lines and the delivery were so over the top, you know, where he's giving the line and he's talking about, for example, you know, is there a chance the plane could get through it? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, you know, he's really like going, yeah, we're, we train these guys and they're good. And then it's like, oh, um, um, <laughs> I mean, it was just hilarious performance. George C. Scott did not do a ton of stuff, but when he did stuff, it was always memorable. He was a, a consummate actor, and um, I, I, I just, I just loved his performance in this. I don't have a ton to add, but he's by far the one that captivates the most attention for me. Sellers is playing the straight man in two of the roles, obviously with Mandrake kind of being the keep calm and a stiff upper lip type of <laughs> Air Force officer to Hayden's just maniacal conspiracy theorist almost. Whereas he's also playing the president who's trying to settle things down. And I do think there is some nuance to how strange love is on the phone to the Russian premier at the same time that Turgidson is just like stark raving mad. He hates the Russians. He distrusts them at all turns. He's fighting and bickering. He's just a man child throughout the course of the film. And yet he's the guy that we're relying on for our nuclear defense. The movie does not work without his character. No, I, uh, I definitely agree on that point. It only, it only seems to me to uh, question level of authority that certain individuals have or don't have. And I start reading comments that were made by military personnel during a recent administration where they were deciding who, you know, whether they were would or would not follow the president's orders and et cetera. And it starts giving me the willies. Um, and um, if I really thought about it, I'd be awake overnight more than I already am. All right. So then let's move to best scene. I have down wing plan R, Miss Scott, the Russian ambassador, Floridation, calling the president. So that would be Mandrake calling the president, just to be clear on yes. that. I have bombs away which is Slim Pickens' ride to its final destination. And I have the finale, Mineshaft Gap. Okay. Any that I missed that you would like to highlight? No. I think that covers it. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene then? Floridation. It's just the entire concept of absolute insanity and how one individual could throw humanity into uh, total destruction. So my best scene is my favorite scene is my most indelible scene. The mine shaft gap. <laughs> it's absurd. It's the funniest thing in the entire movie. It's all of them throwing a hundred miles an hour collectively between Scott now advocating that, Oh, well, I, I might have a ratio of 10 women to one man. It's strange love constantly trying to fight against himself. Nazi saluting. It's just, it's by far the best scene of the movie. It's my favorite scene. 
it's by far my favorite scene. I think it's the funniest. I think it clearly shows the absurdity of of the whole political situation and the military industrial complex. It's by far my favorite scene for that reason. But for me, it's the number one thing I thought of when this movie was coming up on the schedule this week. I know most people would say it's Slim Pickens riding the bomb down, but for me, it's always going to be this scene because it's just ridiculous. Well, Bombs Away is my most indelible moment because that's the scene that I always remember. It's It represents the stupidity of us. We're just, we would rather uh, ride the bomb down to destruction than to uh, forego and have the possibility of being subjugated. I mean, I know that it's it's up there for most people. I just, I think there's a, a level of physical comedy that I just don't relate to anymore. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's satire. The absurdity of him riding it down and making a big deal like he's, ah, the absolute absurdity of taking that position is just, yeah. I can't say anything more than that. It's just, it's it's a situation where you, you can't believe you're seeing it. But then again, when you start thinking about how destructive some people are and ha- some of their attitudes, doesn't seem that absurd. Well, that looks like a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing at the beginning of February, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our monthly special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering Captain America the Winter Soldier from 2014. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Gary Graham, 73, American actor, Star Trek, Enterprise, Hardcore, All the Right Moves, and Alien Nation. Charles Osgood, 91, American journalist, original host of CBS's Sunday Morning, and The Osgood File. David Gale, 58, American actor. Robin's Hoods, by a um, Frank Sinatra film, I believe. Savannah and Port Charles. David M.G., 77, American actor. Dawn of the Dead, Basket Case 2, and Hellmaster. And finally, Norman Jewison, 97, Canadian film director and TV producer, directed Moonstruck, In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Seven Oscar nominations, three for Best Director, and a three-time Emmy winner. So of anyone I recognize him the most, reading his obituary, I was struck by how far-reaching his impact was for a director that has one Best Picture winner to his name. And I think maybe by association has an Oscar, but never won Best Director. But a three-time Emmy winner who helped produce a lot of great television, 
a lot of other great movies that necessarily he wasn't directly involved in other than production. He had a much wider ranging career than I could have ever guessed. He was influential and well regarded as a director within the industry, I know. So we remember these here for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. I'll take the obvious one right off the top. President Merkin Muffley. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. General Jack D. Ripper. Floridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plot we have ever had to face. Colonel Bat Guano. Okay, I'm going to get your money for you. But if you don't get the President of the United States on that phone, you know what's going to happen to you? Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola Company. Major T.J. King Kong. Survival kit. Contents check. In them you'll find one forty-five caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug-issued containing antibiotics, morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible, $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings. Shoot. Fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. The original line was a pretty good weekend in Dallas. They yes. changed it for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, you started out with an accent and then just decided to drop it about like two thirds of the way through. You just completely lost it. Oh, well, uh, sust sustainability is not my forte. It was like Tom Hanks and Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay president muffley i will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since adolf hitler general turgidson perhaps it might be better mr president if you were more concerned with the american people than your image in the history books <laughs> uh general buck turgidson uh, Doctor, you uh, mentioned the ratio of uh, 10 women to each man. Now, wouldn't that uh, necessitate the abandonment of the so-called monogamous sexual relationship? I mean, as far as men were concerned. Dr. Strangelove. Regrettably, yes, but it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. I hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines, the women will have to be selected for their sexual characteristics, which will have to be of a highly stimulating nature. Ambassador Desideski, I must confess, you have an astonishingly good idea there, Doctor. Why does Dr. Strangelove sound like Grover? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> uh. General Turgidson. 
Sir, you can't let him in here. He'll see everything. He'll see the big board. (laughs) That's so reminiscent of the Monty Python bit from their uh, television show, or I guess it was The Meaning of Life, where, what does this do? Well, it's the machine that goes, bing! What does it do? It goes, bing! Yeah. Okay. The big board. Yeah. Okay. You got any left? Uh, no, that's good. All right. I got one more. General Turgidson. It'd be naive of us, Mr. President, to imagine that these new developments would cause a change in Soviet expansionist policy. I mean, we must be increasingly on the alert to prevent them taking over other mineshaft space in order to breed more prodigiously than we do thus knocking us out of these superior numbers when we emerge. Mr. President, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric then, now that uh, we've lost our entire audience from our accents. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Legacy's up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. Do I really need to argue that this is a five for the industry? I mean, we read that ridiculously long list of this is considered to be a top 50 film by most major industry people and critics of all time. It's arguably Kubrick's best movie. Let's not even like parse that one. So what we're down to is how does the audience really think about this? I think there's some name recognition because the name is so strange. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Strangelove, that it has somewhat pierced the general population, even if they have not seen the movie. So some of it may be a little bit of inconsistency, but given the nature of where this is at in the general industry, I'm going to go with a seven overall. I, uh, I, I'll, I'll agree with your industry. The public, I went with a 1.5. You know, the name is familiar. I mean, we did our little informal poll with our focus group, which is my staff, who are broad and range of socioeconomic and educational levels. And and ages. And ages. And and at least gender. I'll give it yeah. that much. It's, it's yeah. an entirely white group, but at least gender, there's some diversity. Yes. So... This was not a, uh, a, a, I think, what was it? Maybe maybe a fifth of the people had ever seen the film, let alone remembered it. It may, I may even be high. Yeah, it was it, probably it, closer to like 10 or 15% of the 20 yeah. or so people in the staff meeting. And they had to be over 40 or 45 in order to have done it. Nobody under had seen it or really knew anything about it. So I think it's a film that's faded and I think it's faded considerably, given that the fact that your generation did never or never lived under the Cold War. So I went with a 1.5. So it's 6.5. All right. So that's a 6.75 average between the two of us. Impact and significance. This is a little harder to argue. It's one of the few nominations that Kubrick got for director. 
Well, I take that back. I think he was nominated for Linden. He was nominated for 2001, if I remember correctly, and I think he was nominated for this. But even so, it got a few nominations in the Oscars category. It furthered, let's see here, Pink Panther was 63, right? Yes. And Shot in the Dark was pretty shortly thereafter. So he would have been probably one of the biggest stars in the world, I would think, about this time. Like This is the peak of Peter Sellers. Correct. What ended up happening is, is by the end of the 60s, early 70s, Peter Sellers was having trouble finding work, which is also the situation with Blake Edwards. They got together and did Return of the Pink Panthers, which revived both of their careers. But this is it was his peak period. Um, he made several flops in the late 60s, and his bankability as a comedic star was on the wane for a while. So, But I still think this would probably be his biggest blip as far as success. I know that 2001 A Space Odyssey was actually a, a higher box office return, but that one was much more divisive among the industry and the critics at the time. This, I think, was much more universally acclaimed. It didn't actually win anything, but I think it could have. To be fair, it was going to be hard for this to ever break through. Comedies at the Oscars is kind of unusual to begin with. So I'm going to go with a 4.5 for the industry. And because it finished as the 12th film of the year, I'm going to guess about a 3.5 on the audience. I have an 8. I have a 4 for the industry and a 3.5 for the public. Yes, that was the 12th film. But when you look at the top five, they all produced almost 10 times the box office that this did. It fell off precipitously after the first four or five or six films. And by the time you got to the 12th, it was splitting hairs between this and a few other films that were released that year. So so what are you arguing? Really, because your audience score is the same as mine. I know. But still, I do think at least it uh, did draw enough that it, I felt 3.5 was justified. So I'm at seven. Well, from your example, okay, we have From Russia with Love, which was the fifth highest grossing, and that was partially due to it came out in 63. That was at number five, and that had 24.8. You had The Carpetbaggers at 28 million. You had Goldfinger near the end of the year, which had 51.1 within 1964. And then the two highest grossing movies were Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady, which were better critically acclaimed, or I guess were much more popular with the audience and got most of the awards attention. Yes. Either way you split it, though, you have a 7.5, I have an 8, we have a 7.75 average. Yes. Novelty. I had a 9. The satire of politics was not novel, but the satire of the military and the whole philosophy of mutual assured destruction. And that was novel. Um, you just didn't find films that poked fun at institutions that were so revered. So I went with a nine for that reason. Despite it being the third film that I think we mentioned that Peter Sellers is pulling multiple duty, 
it wasn't like there were any other actors really doing that regularly in mainstream movies. This is the second straight comedy that he did it for Kubrick. So while that in itself is not necessarily novel, all three characters are distinctly different. You have a Cold War satire. I can't think of too many other Cold War satires until you get to things like Spies Like Us, (laughs) which is another absurdity. But even so, this is, I think, well ahead of its time. And it's a fairly well-executed movie. There are some issues that I have with the visuals and, and some of the things that don't hold up well or don't age well over time, but that's more of a product of classicness than it was what was available at the time. Because Kubrick hadn't invented all of the visual filmmaking that he was going to do for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Thus, yet again, proving how ridiculously well-executed that movie was. So I I had an 8.5, but... I'll stay with your nine. Okay. Do you need help with the math? Sure. I believe it's a nine. What's your confidence level on that? Nine. Out of? Nine. Oh, okay. Classicness. I had to give it at least a half a point down for the whole, you know, hotel room or motel room with your secretary trope. I know that was common in 1964, but still, as far as the classicness itself, the filming, as you pointed out, it kind of looks a little cheesy, the way they show the plane flying and all that. So I gave it a few points down, but otherwise I didn't have too much to draw on as far as questioning the classicness of it. So I went with an 8.5. So how did you give points back up? One, the portrayal of... <laughs> I, I think we sometimes forget about... you know, op, They talked in there about, for example, Operation Paperclip, and I think we forget about the fact that basically we rounded up as many Nazi scientists as we could and hid them in Alabama until the kind of the war crimes trials were over and kind of pretended that it didn't matter that uh, they were instrumental in sending uh, V2 uh, rockets against England. You know, the portrayal of Dr. Strangelove, I think, brought some of that to light as to kind of the absurdity of hiding some of that. Uh, I know that uh, part of Sellers' concept was to uh, note Dr. Strangelove is somewhat equivalent to uh, Warner von Braun the mastermind of the Apollo program. But uh, still, I I gave that a few more points up for classicness. I also gave it a few points up because I think it started a trend towards uh, creating a political satire and laughing at the military and the absurdity sometimes of the statements. For example, I don't think you have MASH, either the film or the TV show, but for this film that type of deal. So I went up from where I normally start, but did, you know, not quite to the level I would have liked or thought about because of the couple of little small check marks I had. So what you're essentially advocating for is, is those three minor points basically adds it up to a 10. And then you subtract down the 1.5 of the few 
small things that you felt were more nitpicky? I think I was probably at a 9 or a 9.5, and then I subtracted down to get to the 8.5. In fact, realistically, now that I'm thinking about it, it probably should have been an 8. Now, I don't hold the same things against this that you do, particularly the secretary scene or whatnot. Given that we don't have any indication that Turgidson is married or whatever else, that doesn't really matter to me. I mean, these types of relationships are still somewhat common. There's no mention that he is, like, taking advantage of her necessarily. She seems to be into it or at least consensual in the whole effort. And that whole scene is a joke within a joke where... She's a Playboy model, and you can clearly see the issue of Playboy with her in it in the scene. So it is kind of like tongue-in-cheek as to what her true relationship is in the film, which is she's the only woman featured in the film, and she's there to look good. So I actually think that's better filmmaking than most people of the era. That being said, I do have to hold against it a little bit One, the graphics and the plane, because the plane is featured so much during the course of the film, it just, it looks weird every time you see it flying against that background, and you know it's like a model airplane on a string, just (laughs) with like a rotating background or something. It's weird. Yeah. The other thing is, I'm going to take a point off because the context needed for some of this to be funny is just not something that has translated or that is still relevant. I think, if anything, while the movie itself is relevant, given the nature of how it's lampooning government officials and specifically military generals, it lacks some of the bite that I'm sure it had in 1964 for people that have no concept of what mutually assured destruction and the tension of what that was. But I'll add back in a point because I think this is a film that gets somewhat of a, let's say, timelessness factor added into it. So I'm going to add a six. Okay. So that's a seven average between the two of us. Rewatchability. The likelihood that I'm going to put this on is primarily because it is one of the few examples, well, it is the only example, at least right now, of a Peter Sellers movie that I enjoy. It is a very famous film. It's actually one of my, I would say I enjoy this more than I do 2001 A Space Odyssey, even though I probably respect that film a little bit more. And Kubrick is one of the seminal artists in film. So it's hard to say that I won't put his movies or specifically this one on again anytime soon. But I'm not necessarily clamoring back to like rewatch this over and over and over again. I I think it has its place. I could watch it once every couple of years and that'll be fine. So I have a three on that side of it. But the likelihood of leaving it on, I mean, it's a 93-minute film. It's decently funny. It goes pretty quickly. I would say I'll give it a 3.5 on that end. I'm at a 6.5. Well, this is going to be within the things that I should watch every period i'm gonna if i run across it i'm gonna stop and watch it for a bit it's 
packed with good performances. There's so much about it that I enjoy. I did think it was funny. Uh, it the the humor holds up. You know, you still laugh even though you know what the jokes are going to be. So I went with the seven point five for rewatchability. So that is also a seven average between the two of us. For audience score, we had a 91% for Google users and a 94% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.25. So to recap the categories, we had a 6.75 for Legacy, a 7.75 for Impact and Significance, a 9 for Novelty, a 7 for Classicness, a 7 for Rewatchability, and a 9.25 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 47.5 and currently placing it in a four-way tie between the Grand Budapest Hotel, Home Alone, and Rashomon. (laughs) Okay. All right. I think we're going to have to break that because just above it is another three-way tie between Major League, His Girl Friday, and A Night at the Opera. Okay. Weird, weird, weird. All right. Anyway... Unfortunately, not some of the uh, beautiful symmetry that we've had before with other films, but uh, yeah, well, quite interesting placement. Yeah. As usual, if you disagree with any of our scores or have commentary for us, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find our email or contact us via the website, ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast. All right, Dad, remaining questions. The one that I had, and I wasn't quite sure, at the very end, the ambassador is playing with some sort of a dial. Was he, like, a bomb? No. When they said before, and Turgidson was trying to, like, fight him, it was because he said that he was using a camera to take pictures of the war room. What that was is he was taking pictures with, like, a spy camera type of thing, That, but that was in a watch. Okay. I'm talking at the very end of the film. I know what you're talking about. So why would he be taking pictures at that point? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't quite understand at that point why he would either other than he's still loyal to Russia, but the likelihood of him getting back to Russia without dying, given that the doomsday machine is likely to go off, is probably slim to none. So how is he going to communicate those pictures? It's not like he has email. Wouldn't the chance be slim to Pickens? Oh. (laughs) I think it's possible that that's just placed in the movie to show that he always had true allegiance to the Russians and that he was in some ways always supposed to be a spy. Yeah. Okay. Thus confirming our, or at least Turgidson's allegations that he's dirty. Yeah. Okay. The part that I don't get about that scene is what is the significance of Dr. Strangelove being able to walk? (laughs) Like, why do you end the film with that line? (laughs) it just was sellers spitballing it you know i don't know if there is anything significant about it other than the fact that he's so motivated by nazism and hitler that you know it's allowed him to rise to the point where he can stand 
I guess. I don't know. Sometimes things don't make sense. Well, supposedly he can't use his one arm, but it works in order to be a Nazi. So is every part of his disability having to do with essentially closeting his Nazism? (sighs) Probably. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. Final question. How is the human race still standing? I have no fucking idea. None. Uh, We're just, we should be. We're fucking idiots. I know. All right. Final thoughts for the week. Oscars released yesterday, so no major surprises. The nominations released yesterday. Yes, excuse me. As we're talking about the t- one of the top nomination films or nominated films being Oppenheimer. It was the top nominated yeah, it film. Was, it got 13. It? One short of the tie for the record for most nominations of a film. Okay. I have a feeling it's going to clean up a lot of the smaller Oscars. I think it's at this point, basically a foregone conclusion that Chris Nolan is riding the coronation as finally getting his due by the Academy for the work that he's done for film just period over the last 15, 20 years. So that one's pretty well knocked in. And the favorite right now I would say is Downey to win best supporting actor. I would think that's, Very, very likely. And then you have maybe an outlier with Killian Murphy yet, that he has a good shot to win Best Actor. If I were to put money on it right now, I would say it's Giamatti's to lose, but I could still see Killian Murphy winning it. Yeah. But that being said, I like the fact that a lot of the Oscar, or excuse me, the Best Picture nominees also were nominated in most of the minor categories. It makes it a little bit easier to get to the majority of the films that are present for when we need to do our preview. Yes. Have you picked a movie for me yet for this year? I am debating on whether it will be a Nicolas Cage or John Travolta film. I see. Okay. Or you could go with both and just do Face Off. That is true. I could do that. I thought about Gotti. Mm. I thought about the Nicolas Cage version of Left Behind. I'm pretty sure that uh, unlike last year where I I was trying to think of what is the most possibly destructive movie that would be tailored specifically for you, I'm just going to go with a bad movie period and probably going to end up with Simon Says, the Dennis Rodman and Dane Cook movie. (laughs) Action movie, no less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because... There are no two people that I really have more respect for, fewer people that I have more respect for than Dane Cook and Dennis Rodman. <sighs> hey, you don't know. It could be good. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And a turd can be polished. Actually, it can. I know. Barely, but it can be. But it's got to be hard poop according to uh, Mythbusters. Oh, no, 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 no. You just have to pack it down. Yeah, they did. They did. I think it was Elephant. Yeah. The most compact. Yeah. And then they pressurized it. They basically put it in a form and made sure that it was packed down so that there was very little air in it. And then they took it and polished it like a stone. Yeah. Well, if there's a better place to end for the week, then I don't know what it would be. (laughs) Sure. 
So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. A person doesn't change just because you find out more. Next week for our 199th episode, we travel to post-war Europe with the spy thriller The Third Man from 1949, celebrating its 75th anniversary. Directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, music by Anton Karras, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.